Welcome to You Totally Made That Up. We're a bi-weekly history podcast that focuses on the weirdest stories from the past, and we particularly go for the ones that have some sort of paranormal, supernatural elements to them. But the catch is, the stories at their core must be true, even if those parts are only true to the people who live them. But Spooky Snacks are the quickie, short episodes we sometimes put out in between the regular ones. And they can just be about legends and lore, and also your listener stories of crazy, bizarre stuff that may have happened to you or a friend or someone in your family. And we love when y'all send us topic suggestions for these, things that are too short for a big episode, the stuff that may have zero truth to them but are too wild and fun to pass up. And real quick, a side note, we have two killer suggestions for Spooky Snacks currently waiting in the wings. So Smee and Gibson 1687, and I, I have, I have Hannah jotted down here in my notes with no further clarification. I assume I got into my head somehow that that's your name, but in any event, not ignoring y'all, we just wanted to sneak this one in for what's about to be an obvious reason, but y'all are on deck. And other listeners, if you want to submit stuff to us or just get hold of us for whatever reason, keep listening after the story for the outro, which tells you how to do so. Let's get rolling. My name's Nash, and it's just us this time. My lovely co-host Tiff couldn't make it, but we're going to be just fine, you and me. This is a special edition Spooky Snack, though it's still under our umbrella because the subject matter definitely feels creepy. It's about disease spread. There's little monsters known as bacteria and viruses and fungal infections and parasites, all those bugs. They're invisible, and they're invasive, and they suck. Just about everybody in the world right now is thinking on how disease sucks. And the story I'm going to tell you sure is a strange one, but there's some funny to be found in a dark humor sort of way. It's not a total bummer, so don't want to dissuade you from listening. Possibly related to dissuading you from listening, a slight disclaimer, no worries, we're not talking about COVID-19 specifically, but this does relate in a big way to a certain aspect of it. Initially, in my notes, I went through this whole thing about not wanting to reveal my secret identity, and I don't. I'm vocal, yeah, but I'm really private. And I skirted around what my profession is in order to, I don't know, I guess I wanted to give you confidence in listening to my take on today's topic. I am a clinician, I'll say that, but here's the bottom line. Don't just take my word for it, regardless of however many letters I may have after my name. Still do your own reading and thinking. And while I want to hit a couple high points about what's going on right now with the current pandemic, what I'm not going to do is get into deep specifics about COVID-19 in particular because my wheelhouse isn't virology or infectious disease, and there's new and updated information coming out with fair frequency. So I don't want this to be a that-didn't-age-well episode, but I will recommend the World Health Organization as a solid jumping-off place from which to get info. They're unbiased, and they're watching the progression across the globe. So they don't have, you know, a dog in the fight about any particular area. I'm going to put some resources and show notes for you to dig into as well, stuff that I've found to be to the point and that will age well, And there's also going to be a link to a great article and video from a science educator named Cara Santamaria. If you listen to Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, you'll know who that is. And it's about how to distinguish solid science from the shaky stuff or the outright bullcrap. But anyway, it's a great little tutorial on honing your scientific critical thinking skills. Here's all I'll say about the current situation in the sense of how it relates to the story you're about to hear. First, better to make a big deal out of things like this than not. People may look back and think, yes, some people died, but Lord, everybody overreacted. It ended up not being this huge deal like everyone was going on about. But what's behind that, behind being overly cautious, is that getting the jump on this stuff means it wasn't the big deal that was projected. I hope I'm making sense. Put another way, 
prevention can look, in retrospect, like overreaction. And for me, when it comes to disease, I'd rather have overly cautious than not cautious enough. I hope the world comes out of this with some people thinking it was an overreaction. That means we did our jobs. Second, on that note, the scientists, the virologists, the infectious disease docs, the public health pros, they know more than you, than me. This is their jam. And forget the news frenzy for a second. If the pros and the World Health Organization and the scientific bodies in various countries are saying this is a pandemic, then we would be wise to listen. Bluntly, if you're going to choose between relying on a medical professional and a public figure, the obvious choice is to choose the professional. And even then, use your critical thinking skills. Stack up what they're saying against currently available, most recently updated, well-vetted evidence. So like I say, we wanted to scoot this episode in because it's really concerning that some folks don't seem to understand a certain aspect of disease, which is that you can be asymptomatic and still transmit. Now, what that word means, asymptomatic, is that you don't feel lousy. Let's say you're hearing about this thing going around and how people are having, and I'm just making these up as examples. Let's say that there's this hypothetical bug going around and the bug is mostly causing people headaches and fever and diarrhea, but your head doesn't hurt. You don't have a fever, and you're pooping just fine. So you think you're in the clear. And to a degree, maybe you are. Problem is, you could be carrying the bug. And by not being careful around others, you're exposing them to it, passing it along. Then they start passing it, and so on. Could the fact that you're a carrier be picked up by some testing? Well, sure, perhaps. But most people would be like, why go to the doctor when I feel fine? And that's perfectly reasonable. The point of this episode is to try to understand what's going on in our present by taking a look at the past. And what we're looking at in this episode is that very element of passing disease around without knowing it and what can happen when you're in denial about it, how far gone things can get. So today, friends, I'm telling you the patently weird story of a woman named Mary Mallon. She was born in Ireland in 1869 and immigrated to the United States in 1884. And she was a domestic worker in various roles working for wealthy families, but mostly she was a cook. By the time she's 37 years old, she's the cook for a family living in a brownstone on Park Avenue in New York City. And in March of 1907, a man shows up and, quote, demanded a little bit of her blood, urine, and feces. It did not take Mary long to react to this suggestion, the man later wrote of the encounter. She seized a carving fork and advanced in my direction. I mean, I don't know if I'd have gone into attack mode but I definitely would have had a what-the-what reaction to some random showing up and one in my blood and peeps and poops. It turns out this wasn't some random, some sicko. This dude was a George Soper, and he was a sanitary engineer, quote, known around New York as an epidemic fighter. And he'd been investigating a bit of a mystery. There had been a typhoid fever outbreak, and he suspected Mary might be a carrier and was unknowingly passing it along, which was, as the Smithsonian puts it, a relatively new concept at the time. Let's pause for a second and go over quickly what typhoid fever is all about. It's caused by a certain strain of the Salmonella bacteria, and it can most definitely be life-threatening if left untreated. So how do it spread? Through person-to-person contact and through food and or water that's contaminated by an infected person's poo. Put another way, Somebody who has taken a dump and then not washed their hands and then gone and handled food. Then what happens? The bacteria can eventually creep into the bloodstream and cause body-wide infection. What are the symptoms of typhoid fever? Well, hey, fever! And it can jump pretty high into the 103-degree ballpark. Weakness, headache, cough. Some people have been known to develop this rash of flat, rose-colored spots. And then there's the digestive system issues. Loss of appetite, cramps, and diarrhea and or constipation. How is it treated? Well, to rewind slightly, 
If you're traveling to a country that is questionable regarding robust sanitation and water supply, nowadays there's a vaccine, so yay. But after the fact, you're treated with antibiotics and you're to be diligent about your hygiene and you're most certainly not to prepare food for other people. Honestly, just stay out of the kitchens. Please? Please? Now, as far as the time period in question, the early 20th century, the mortality rate for those with typhoid fever was at roughly 1 out of 10 people, and they knew that it was spread through food and water and was related to poor sanitation, and because of that, breakouts were associated with the urban poor. But there had been blips of it popping up outside of that societal group with no obvious explanation. Which smacks of classism to my reading, that it was like impossible to think that those who were more well-off couldn't maybe have had bad hygiene. But anyway, in Germany, research had been done, and they had documented cases of people who were for all intents and purposes healthy, but were carrying the bacteria in their peeps and poops. But at this point, as said, it wasn't a terribly popular belief, and one of my sources noted that no carriers had been ID'd in the U.S. But, counterpoint, were they testing these seemingly healthy people in and amongst the sick folks when these many outbreaks would pop up, since apparently not a lot of folks were sold on the concept? You can't know if you don't test. Back to the story. So what led Soper to Mary specifically? He had been contacted by a certain Mrs. Thompson in the winter of 1906, who, if I'm reading this correctly, ran the household at a home in Oyster Bay in Long Island owned by a wealthy New York banker named Charles Henry Warren, where they'd rent out rooms for the summer season through the early fall. And there was that outbreak of typhoid fever that I mentioned, and it happened several months prior, wherein a lot of her renters had contracted it, six out of 11. And she's a smart cookie. She thought that couldn't be a coincidence, all those people being sick, having being guests at the house in common. Plus, and very correctly, she was going to start losing business in a major way if this wasn't figured out. Sober takes on the case and goes to the house and, quote, After finding no issue with the well, the outhouse, the food supplies, or any other part of the property that might have generated germs, Sober considered the possibility that the carrier could have been a healthy person. By process of elimination, he landed on a likely culprit, the cook. Soper is also a smart cookie. You know, I really shouldn't be using food metaphors in this story. Soper looks into this cook, into this Mary Mallon. She had started working at the Warren House on August 3rd of 1906, and the sickness started kicking up between the 27th and September 3rd. And by kicking up, like I say, six out of the 11 people staying there had been diagnosed with typhoid fever. Upon interviewing her co-workers, Mary was, quote, described by the other servants as not particularly clean, which, you know, is exactly who you want handling the food, and that, quote, though most of her dishes were hot and prepared at temperatures that would have killed any bacteria, Mallon had served ice cream with fresh peaches one Sunday, which some of the house guests ate with gusto. And, eh, that's a maybe on the heat killing the bug part. Depends on the strength of the sucker. Some take quite a bit of heat and sustained heat to kill them off. But, ooh, Actually, side note, while we're here, that is exactly what your immune system is doing when you have a fever. That's not the bug doing it, per se. It's your immune system trying to cook the little suckers. If you didn't know. Well, now you do. So Soper is diligent. He starts tracking Mary's work history, back before she worked for Mrs. Thompson, and he went back years to 1900 and found, holy moly, seven separate households she'd worked at across New York and Maine where there had been typhoid fever outbreaks. Quote, in nearly every instance, a well-to-do and socially prominent family, soon after moving from the city to the country for the summer, experienced an outbreak of typhoid fever. In no instance had its cause been satisfactorily explained, Soper recounted in the Bulletin of the New York Academy of Medicine. The cook always left soon afterward. 
she had never been suspected. Listen, listen, denial is a powerful thing, and as you'll learn, it's especially powerful in Mary. But let's put her aside for a moment. You might ask, how in blue hell did nobody, particularly the heads of the households, not notice that she shows up, everybody starts getting sick, she leaves, people stop getting sick. It does boggle the mind to a degree, but on the other hand, let's not all be too judgy. They're distracted with the illness for one thing, and secondly, look at those dates. She is job-hopping something fierce. From 1900 up until Soper finds her in 07, she's now had at least nine jobs, counting the ones she had at the point that he finds her. And about that first encounter, when she chased him off, I want to be clear here to illustrate the temper on this woman. She did not just wave this carving fork around at him and shoo him. Soper says, after she starts coming towards him, quote, I passed rapidly down the long, narrow hall, through the tall iron gate, out through the area, and to the sidewalk. I felt rather lucky to escape. Sober also said, and this cracked me up, I was as diplomatic as possible, but I had to say I suspected her of making people sick, and that I wanted specimens of her urine, feces, and blood. Oh, George, I just, I don't know if there's any way to be diplomatic about wanting somebody's bodily fluids. But the situation was already serious in that household because the laundress was already in the hospital and the family's only child, a daughter, was, quote, dying of it. And they both had typhoid fever that was confirmed. Sober comes back the next day and he finds that the room she's hanging out in was, quote, a place of dirt and disorder. And he tries again to explain that she's the common denominator. And Mary's angry. And she's like, I've never had typhoid. And typhoid is everywhere around the city. And that her employers and the others had, quote, suffered no more cases than anyone else. Well, thank you, Mary Mallon, public health expert. Goddamn, her Twitter account would be something to behold. And she'd have a million followers, and they'd retweet every word. You just know it. Anyway, also serious was that Mary says she's about to quit, and Soper's rightfully afraid that she was going to disappear on him, so he goes to the New York City Health Department and convinces them of his theory, and they agree to help out. Quote, on March 19th, Inspector Dr. Josephine Baker paid Mallon a visit, trying again to persuade her to cooperate, but Mallon slammed the door in Baker's face. When a health department ambulance and a detachment of police arrived to arrest Mallon on March 20th, she fled out the back door and over a fence and put up an impressive fight when she was finally cornered. Other sources said that she actually evaded them for like three to five hours and that they found her in a neighbor's shed because the hem of her dress had got caught in the closed door. The ride down to the hospital was quite a wild one, Dr. Baker recalled. Oh, oh, I bet it was. She's taken to an isolation ward at Willard Parker Hospital, and in the time between March 20th and November 16th, so I mean, she's there a while, they test her poo three times every week, and damn near every sample is positive for the typhoid fever bacteria. Soper, bless him. He keeps trying to explain to her, and he's doing it in the simplest ways possible. Several of my sources are quoting what he's saying. I mean, he is, trust me, he is keeping it basic. And he does want to help her get out of there, get back to a normal life, because at this point, there's nothing to give her. They don't have the appropriate antibiotics yet. And she's just stone-faced. And by the way, I have a picture in show notes illustrating said face. There is a photo of her in a hospital ward and the look. I mean, she is so beyond pissed. Her head is turned, just giving the camera some eat shit and die action. But so this one time in particular, he says that she's just glaring at him. And he's like, if you would just really scrub your hands after you go to the bathroom, this would likely solve everything. You'd get back to your life. You just got to do this one thing. 
and he says that she stands up, cinches her robe, stomps into the bathroom, and slams the door. After which I imagine she took a dump and then didn't wash her hands. Another solution doctors came up with. They speculated that the source was her gallbladder, and since that's an organ you can live without, they wanted to do surgery and remove it. And recent studies have actually backed this up, that it's the source for many carriers, that the bug is getting emptied into the intestines along with the bile, then it goes into the poo. But quote, no knife will be put upon me, Mallon told the doctors. I have nothing the matter with my gallbladder. Well, thank you for your expert opinion, gastrointestinal surgeon Mary Mallon. Now go sit on the pot and tweet about it. All right, no surgery. You got it. They move her to quarantine at Riverside Hospital, which is on North Brother Island, which is near the Bronx on the East River, into this cottage, bungalow, whatever situation that was originally for the chief nursing officer. And it was pretty swank. One of my sources saying it was probably the nicest place she'd ever lived. It had indoor plumbing and gas and electric and a living room, a kitchen, all that good stuff. But they also talked about how, sure, it must have been lonely because she couldn't be around any of the other residents of the island and the hospital brought her the supplies. And so she was basically all alone except for occasional doctor's visits. And this lasted for almost three years. They're trying treatments on her the whole time and nothing's working. She's still testing positive and in 1909, she's had it and she sues the health department for release. The claim stating that she was being unlawfully held while she had not committed a crime. Technically true. But, quote, the law allowed the health department to quarantine people in situations like Malin's when the risk of spreading a deadly infection to the rest of the population was too great. Mary finally cracks in 1910 and agrees to the stipulations that she take the hygienic precautions they told her to. Wash your frickin' hands, you idiot. And that she'd never work again as a cook or handle other people's food. And that she'd check in with the health department every three months. Now, y'all, do you think Mary did these things? That's a big fat nope. No other domestic worker jobs paid as well as cooking. And one of my sources notes that based on things Mary had said, she legit enjoyed cooking. And I mean, you know, if her job record is any indication, she was probably a good one. So she has dipped and she starts using fake names such as Marie Breshoff and Mary Brown. But the agencies who normally placed her in these rich families' homes knew who she was and wouldn't facilitate getting her jobs. And so she goes and gets work in restaurants and hotels and, sweet Lord, hospitals over the next five years. And I have no idea how she got hired at those beyond the fake names because there were articles about her in the paper. Her picture had been in the paper. It was out there. Granted, it wasn't high res, but still. Regarding the press, quoting one of my sources, Malin's legend grew almost immediately. A newspaper illustration during her first imprisonment conveyed the public's morbid fascination with her. An aproned woman casually drops miniature human skulls into a skillet like eggs. And I've got that in a newspaper article with her picture and show notes. The article's a hoot. The title is, New York has caught a 20th century witch who scatters not spells, but typhoid germs. They know for sure that she worked as a cook in a restaurant on Broadway, a hotel in Southampton, and a sanatorium in New Jersey, but she dips when people start getting sick. And this is what galls me. She knew. She knew. And I get that she was in denial, but how the hell much does it take? I just, I don't get people like this. Anyway, she's in the wind because, quote, she never stayed in one place long enough to rouse suspicion. That is, until 1915, when Dr. Edward B. Cragen solicited Soper's help in detecting the cause of a typhoid outbreak at New York's Sloan Hospital for Women. More than 20 people had fallen ill, and the other servants had taken to calling the cook Typhoid Mary. And then, quote, when the health department came for her this time, she didn't put up a fight. 
She knew, y'all, in her heart, she knew. Willful ignorance. Drives me nuts. They put her back in the house on the island, and she lived out the rest of her life there, 23 years. As time passed, she grew less belligerent, and they gave her a job. I mean, they paid her. It wasn't a pity position. And she would process basic medical tests in the lab. Which, um, I guess if somebody was supervising her and making sure she was washing her hands, okay? Question mark? That seems unwise to me, but whatever. I wasn't there. And once she wasn't considered a flight risk, they allowed her to make visits off the island. She still had a few friends, and she would go shopping and such. And I don't get the impression that she was accompanied from what I've read, but I can't imagine that at least at first they just let her go and do. And I've no idea what convinced them that she wouldn't run off. But I mean, she didn't. She'd come back to the island every time. And Soper wrote, quote, In these eight years since she was first arrested, she had learned what it was to yield to other wills than her own and to no pain. In the last five years, although she had been free, there had been times when she found it hard to fight her battles unaided. Her old age was provided for. There was a good hospital with doctors nearby. She became a privileged guest of the city. Nobody ever talked to her about anything she did not want to talk about. She announced that her past life was a closed incident, and nobody bothered her about it. And Mary had a stroke on Christmas Day of 1932, and they moved her into the hospital because it left her unable to walk. And then six years later, she died on November 11, 1938. When all was said and done, there were confirmed 84 cases of typhoid fever that were directly related to Mary Mallon, three of whom ultimately died from it. But of course, chances are there were many, many more. I'm going to end with a quote that sums this whole thing up perfectly, and which I hope really drives home the carrier without symptoms situation. Ignorance, not malice, made Mary Mallon a killer. Although a string of doctors tried for years to convince her that although she was perfectly healthy, her body hosted a thriving population of bacteria, she refused to believe them. Mallon didn't run around New York infecting people on purpose like some kind of deranged human bioweapon. She just didn't believe the evidence. So my lovelies, don't be willfully ignorant. Don't be a typhoid Mary. If at all possible, during this time, you can stay home, stay home. Like I said, I'll stick some supplemental stuff in show notes about COVID-19 as relates to carrier spread that I found helpful and solid in the info department, if you're interested, and I certainly hope you are. If you want me to do more little things like this on disease spread during our present pandemic time, let me know. We could talk about others like the 1918 flu or how we dodged a bit of a bullet in 1957 or smallpox or hell, the Black Plague. Just let me know and we'll see. But I get if y'all are overloaded. I'm kind of overloaded. I get it. And barring any unforeseen, this podcast is going to be publishing just like usual throughout this tough time. And on that note, we will catch you in the next episode. This is where the catchphrase goes. Thanks so much for listening. As a reminder, you can check out our sources for each of the episodes at show notes, along with any supplemental things we think you might enjoy. Visit us on our blog at youtotallymadethatup.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at YTMTUPodcast and on Instagram at youtotallymadethatup. Feel free to contact us on those platforms, and you can also email us. That address is youtotallymadethatup at gmail.com.